Job chapter 11 is where we'll begin. But I want to take you back a few days to Sunday morning, which is my favorite time of the week. Not just here, I love being here, but early Sunday morning, it's my favorite time. Before I come down here, every Sunday I've gotten into this little ritual that I perform. After shower and shave, I head through the dark house and it's all quiet. Everybody's in bed, no one's talking, no noise anywhere. And I go into the kitchen, I put the kettle on the stove, and I get my cereal and and either my computer or my books or my sermon notes or something, and I sit there in the corner of the counter, and I read and eat my cereal in the stillness, and it's just, it's the most peaceful time of the entire week. And the only thing I can hear at that time, and for whatever reason it's comforting to me, is the sound of the water in the kettle simmering. You know, that kind of humming sound that it makes. And I hear that in the background, and I love that sound as I'm sitting there. But there comes a disturbing moment in my ritual of peace every Sunday when the water finally hits the boiling point and steam comes shrieking out of the spout. And the bad thing is when I get engrossed in what I'm doing or maybe I'm over in my office grabbing something else and it starts to shriek and I I run as fast as I can to turn it down. But it's really irritating. In fact, I don't know that there's anything more irritating than the sound of a shrieking tea kettle. It just It's like an emergency. You've got to get it off the stove. You've got to stop the sound. Zophar is a screaming teapot. That is the best description I have of this guy. You know, he sits there for seven days and nights in silence with Job. And he listens to Job's anguish. And no doubt he agrees with Eliphaz's rebuke. And he holds his tongue while Job responds in defense. And then Bildad speaks up. And I can almost see Zophar there on the side going, wanting to say something, you know. But Bildad's talking now. And there's likely an age order here, just to be aware of. Eliphaz, the oldest, Bildad, the next in age, and Zophar, the third oldest, because typically that's how they would converse. If you have something to say, you're going to respect the oldest person first, on down to the youngest. And so he's waiting through all this. He waits even through Job's response to Bildad, and finally, I mean, all the while he's heating up, finally he just pops his spout. Finally he, like like a screaming teapot, just lets go and shrieks. Chomping at the bit to get his message out, Zophar, like a screaming teapot, unleashes the most scalding rebuke of Job yet. Chapter 11, verse 1. So far the Naamatite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered? Which is Hebrew for blah, 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 blah. You guys are talking and talking and talking, and Job, you're just, you, you keep talking. He said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a talkative man be acquitted? I mean, he's just jumping immediately on Job's case. There's no grace here. Shall your boast silence men? And shall you scoff and none rebuke? For you have said, My teaching is pure, oh, and I am innocent in your eyes. See, Zophar is throwing the word back into Job's face, and he's saying, How dare you speak this way? I mean, listen to yourself. Oh, look at me, I'm so righteous, I'm so pure, woo. (laughs) This is what he's saying, and I have no doubt that there was some kind of an attitude like that coming out of Zophar, because of the words he's choosing. It's like, you say you're righteous, whatever, dude. 
Whatever. Verse 5, he continues on, he says, But would that God might speak and open His lips to you and show you the secrets of wisdom. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. God has spoken. God has already made a declaration about Job. Do you remember how the book begins? Chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. God had already declared Job righteous. So for Job to claim it himself, he's in the right. He is a righteous man. He is pure. That's why he's so confused. But so far, and friends, God, they don't think so. They're thinking something's hidden here. Something's going on with this Job that he's not telling us. And he's portraying himself as righteous and pure. No way. Listen, it's a lie of the enemy to try to get you to think that God thinks poorly of you. This is something Satan does. He tries to impress upon you the fact that, or or the idea that that God really has an issue with you. That you're not what you should be. That that you don't have it together before Him. He, He knows if you think He's against you, if you think Satan's against you, no biggie. He's the enemy. Of course He's against me. But if He get can get you to think that God is against you, well that's a different thing completely. Because that can undermine my faith. That can rattle my trust, my hope, my security. If God's against me? But I remind you of that verse we have heard hundreds of times. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. It's a common ploy of the enemy to emphasize a Christian's faulty works of righteousness so that we'll keep our eyes off of God's faithfulness. And I just encourage you not to look at your works, but to look at the Father. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, as He said, the author and perfecter of our faith. Well, if He's the author and perfecter of our faith, He's the one working it in our lives. All He's called us to do is keep our eyes on Him. Not keep our eyes on what we're doing, hoping that we don't slip up. There's a word for this kind of thinking, and it's Zophar's kind of thinking, and that's legalism. But hold on to that thought. Verse 6 continues on. He says, For sound wisdom has two sides. What does he mean by that? Literally in the Hebrew, it's sound wisdom is double. It's folded over. It's thick. In other words, true wisdom, he's saying to Job, you can't get through it. It's too thick for you. You're not able to get to the other side of it. It's hard to cut through. Difficult to penetrate. And he's chiding Job's wisdom as thin by comparison to God's. He says, sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. Now, the way that's translated, it sounds nice. Well, God forgets part of my sin. Well, that's good. He forgets some. Good. I need Him to. <laughs> but that's not what Zophar is saying. Listen to the King James Version of it, the translation of this, which is actually better. God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserves. Now, do you get what he's saying? He's saying, Job, you're not getting half what you deserve to get. You should be getting far worse. The fact that you're even alive right now, God is being gracious, you should be getting much worse than this. This little teapot is steamed up and spouting off. Verse 7. Can you discover the depths of God? 
Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? By the way, the answer to that is no. But good old Zophar goes right on in the next verse to explain that he had discovered it. (laughs) They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? Oh, Zophar, your words are so impressive. You know something about God. You obviously are a great theologian. A legend in your own mind. The truth is, gang, Zophar isn't saying anything that hasn't already been said. In fact, if you go line by line through chapter 11 and this little speech of Zophar, you will find nothing new that hasn't already been spoken by Eliphaz or Bildad or Job. He's just repeating. In fact, Zophar, that's what he is. He's a repeater. He's spewing out theology as if it were something new, but there's nothing new in this man's words. When you look at these three guys, they all three represent some aspect of of religious Christianity. Eliphaz, the oldest, is the religious one. That's, That's his shtick. He is religious. He points to God's holiness. Bildad is the traditionalist. Everything that he is concerned about is that he's focused on tradition. Remember, he's the one who says, learn from the past. Learn from the fathers. Bildad's the guy who would show up at church and get mad when new things were happening, saying, hey, we've always done it that way. We don't do this new thing, but we do it this way. So far is not the religious or the traditionalist. So far is the legalist. So far is the one who comes along and he clings to theology without compassion and truth without perspective. And honestly, it's kind of a safe place to play. A lot of people do. Well, that's what I was told growing up, so that's what I believe, legalism. Well, that's what we do in our church, legalism. Well, that's what the law commands me to do, so I just do it, legalism. Well, okay, so what's the difference between being a legalist and just being biblical? What's the difference between these two things? Well, Jesus comes along in Matthew 5.19 and He says, Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus elevated the law. Jesus said the law is a good thing. And Jesus said, you know, you, you should be walking in the law. But remember what He hung the law on? Do you remember the, Give me the one word that Jesus hung the law on. Love. 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 The whole law and the prophets hang on this. Love God and love people. So that is not legalism. It's, it's love. It's the law in perspective. It's walking it out because of the love of God and because of the love you have for others. The problem is not with the law or the word. The problem is with the heart. And so often it is. Well, let me point out a few things for you that legalism does. Because Zophar really has this legalistic perspective. Number one, legalism lifts up the law to break down people. If you've ever been around someone who, who loves to just quote Scripture but without compassion, to quote Scripture to take you down or to prove you wrong or to get into debate, that's legalism. Lifting up the law to break down people. It's also what I would call teapot theology. Because it's so far. It's going off on someone out of your head knowledge without applying the love that God calls us to in our hearts. 
It's getting steamed when someone's reality doesn't fit into the little box of your Sunday school background. It's getting upset when there's something that seems different than what you think you know. And it's pharisaical. The Pharisees lifted up the law to break down people. It's how they used it. Jesus said in Matthew 23 where He gives that scathing rebuke of the Pharisees. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Great teachers, they're just not great uh, examples. He says, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Legalism lifts up the law to break down people. But the word, the word gang, always needs to be applied with grace and mercy because that's where it comes from. Father gives the word. Well, the Father is love. And because the Father is love, the word He gives comes from the perspective of love and needs to be filtered through the perspective of love. Second thing legalism does is it ignores the commonality of faith in Jesus. Legalism ignores the commonality of faith in Jesus. It turns biblical truth into battlefields of debate. I, we don't do this in our country anymore. In fact, not even in my lifetime really. But prior to that, in the last century, the great debates were a big source of entertainment in towns across America. You get a Baptist preacher... And you get a Methodist preacher in there, and they'd set up this great debate, and the two preachers would go at it. And then they would preach from their perspective, and they would debate each other on the right and wrong of how their particular brand of church did things. And this was called fun. And it was done all across America. A preacher from this church and a preacher from that church would show up to debate each other. Brothers in Christ, duking it out over the Word of God. Legalism. It's legalism. Paul said, speaking the truth in love. I know we've said this verse a few times recently. Speaking the truth in love. See, this is the issue for Job and his friends. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. We don't study the Bible to win arguments. You know this. We study the Bible to win hearts. You know the Word and you apply the Word so that someone will come to Jesus. Not so that you'll be right and they'll be wrong. Like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, what you could call biblically sound statements, they take them and they use them to hammer and hurt Job, Job with whom they disagree. Romans 14.13, Paul said the following, he said, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, a side note on this. Growing up, I heard this verse all the time. Don't put a stumbling block in your brother's way. But it was always applied from a person who felt like you were doing something that violated their faith. Oh, can't do that. You're putting a stumbling block in my way. You're doing something different than what we do. That's a stumbling block. You can't do a stumbling block. And the mentality is all wrong. Paul says, I know and I'm convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean in in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy your food, or with your food, him for whom Christ died. Paul's perspective is this. He would say to you and to me, if you're mature in Christ, 
if you've grown up in Jesus, if you really know Jesus, then live your life in such a way so as not to make it difficult for someone whose faith is not as strong as yours. Now the way this verse was used when I was growing up, oftentimes when people would use it to, to protect their legalistic view. Oh, don't do that, that's a stumbling block. The idea is, if I'm mature in Christ, I'm not going to put a stumbling block in your way. If I'm with someone who has a certain view, and they feel very strongly about it, and, there's, and, and, and for me to even question it would be difficult for them, okay, we're not going to fight about that. You believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, we have a commonality in our faith. Let's look at that. Let's focus on where we are in like-mindedness. Well, Zophar is still steaming on the stove. Verse 11. For he knows false men, and he sees iniquity without investigating. True enough. An idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. Which we looked at on Sunday. (laughs) He's saying, you're an idiot, Job. You're a fool. You're a, a liar. Job, you're a sinner. And with this last statement, he's telling Job, God knows what's going on here, Job. You think you can hide it from us, but God knows what's going on. Zophar is convinced that there is some kind of secret sin in Job's life. Something that he hasn't confessed to them yet. Some reason for this pain. Because it it wouldn't make sense to them any other way. There's got to be a hidden sin that Job has not yet confessed. Something bad. Something heinous. And Job's holding it in. Now, again, there's some truth in what Zophar is saying. Like the other two guys, they speak some truth, but they're hammering away with it. The truth is, the Lord does see right through our vain attempts to sweep sin under the rug. You can't hide it from God. You know that. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. The Lord knows. We think we're so tricky. He knows. Psalm 90, verse 8, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. I mean, just by showing up, the light of the glory of God reveals our sinfulness. And He is fully aware of what's going on in our lives. But again, so far, He's using this this truth that God knows everything. He's using it to try to guilt trip Job. And that's the third thing legalism does. Legalism pronounces false guilt. Legalism pronounces false guilt. All three friends, apparently, based on what they're saying, they think... Job has secretly sinned. There's something going on. What if he had? Now you and I know he hadn't. But what if he had? Even if there had been some kind of a secret sin, rather than grabbing a spiritual crowbar and trying to pry a confession out of Job, there's a better way. Back in the 17th century, a French priest... It's also a poet named Francois Fenelon. Fenelon. That's the way you say it in French. Fenelon. He said, We hear this voice which carries a tender reproach to the bottom of our hearts, and our hearts are torn by it. This is true and pure contrition. Listen to that again. I love the way he puts this. We hear this voice which carries a tender reproach to the bottom of our hearts, and our hearts are torn by it. See, God doesn't approach anybody with the crowbar of guilt. Saying, look at what you've done. We've got to get it out of you. Sick, sinful. 
That's not what he does. He speaks a tender reproach. He causes us to pause. Just by his presence, things come to light. We're aware of it. He's aware of it. And rather than hammering away, well, you know what Paul said, the kindness of God brings you to repentance. It's always his kindness that leads us there. I mean, what, what's worse? When you know you've sinned, what's worse? For the Lord to just to hammer on you? Which actually might make you feel better because I know I deserve it. Beat away. But, but what's worse? Or to have the Father say, you know, we both know what's going on here. Oh, don't be nice to me, Lord. Don't be kind. Because that tears my heart open, which is great, because that's what needs to happen. My heart to break and be opened up so that I can be restored. Gang, we've heard this over and over. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. But if the kindness of God leads you to repentance, might your kindness do the same thing for someone else? There's a lesson to be learned there in the way we treat each other. But sometimes a better way to draw out a confession that someone needs to confess is to love them and show kindness to them and allow the kindness to work out the truth. Verse 13. So far continues on. If you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand to Him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Then, indeed, you could lift up your face without moral defect. And you would be steadfast and not fear, for you would forget your trouble. As waters that have passed by, you would remember it. Water under the bridge, Job. Just water under the bridge. Confess, repent, and your troubles will go away. Your life would be brighter than noonday. Darkness would be like the morning, he says. And then you would trust because there's hope. Then you would look around and rest securely. You would lie down and none would disturb you and many would entreat your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail and there will be no escape for them and their hope is to breathe their last. Gang, in this we see kind of the final thing about legalism from Zophar's perspective. Number four, legalism cheapens grace. Legalism cheap is grace. How, how is that? Instead of grace being a gift of God, it becomes something that we have to earn. We've got to buy into this grace. And that's not grace at all. The second I do anything to earn some of God's favor, that's not grace. Because grace is 100% what God does and not what we do. Zophar is saying in these last few words, it's up to you, Job, to change your circumstances. If you would do this, 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 and this. Here's the list. You need to put your sin away from you. Number one. Number two, you need to repent. Number three, you need to confess. And I'm going to give you five or six things here, Job, to do. Do these things, and then you'll get grace. And then you get forgiveness. Grace is not something so cheap as to be bought in a thrift store. To be purchased by some lame deeds that that we might do. Grace came at the highest price by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Any attitude of self-righteousness cheapens the gift. Let me put it this way. Has anybody ever, ever been handed a gift and then felt kind of bad about it and turned around to the giver and said, let me pay for that? I mean, how rude would that be? That's just bad form. 
someone gives you something and says, oh, no, 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 I want to pay for that. No, no, you're stealing their grace. You're stealing their joy, their blessing. Legalism does that. Legalism is as as though we say, hey, thanks for the grace, Lord. Um, Now, what do we owe you? What, What can we pay for this? It cheapens the gift. And as we looked at last week, the chesed of God, that word chesed, the Hebrew for grace, loving kindness, mercy, that's what it's all about. That's what Job is looking toward. And it's not anything that he can do to earn that. Psalm 86, verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Not to all who repent, confess, do this, that, and the other. No, to all who just call upon you. Ironically, the Lord is applying grace right here. How is He doing that? Well, He's not stepping in and smacking Zophar up the side of the head. Which he should. You know, I'm kind of, I'm waiting for it to happen. The Lord, these guys are just, they're shooting off their mouths here. When are you going to smack them a bit? What is God doing through all this dialogue? You ever wonder that? Well, what's, what's he up to here? He's watching. He's listening. He's standing by. But in his wisdom, the Lord knows there's still more to be worked out among these four friends. And I also think Job, uh, the Lord is allowing Job some room to defend himself and in so doing to come to the truth himself. Watch Job knock this little teapot right off the stove. Verse 1, chapter 12. Then Job responded, <laughs> and I love this, Oh, truly you are the people and with you wisdom will die. In other words, oh, you demand. You demand. You are who it's all about. And of course, when you die, wisdom's going with you because you know everything. (laughs) It's awesome. He says, but I have intelligence as well as you. I am not inferior to you. And who does not know such things as these? I mean, this is like popping Zophar on the nose. You haven't said anything new here, son. (laughs) Everybody knows this. I'm a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and He answered Him. The just and blameless man is a joke. And then He says this, He who is at ease holds calamity in contempt. That's worth underlining right there. He who is at ease holds calamity in contempt as prepared for those whose feet slip. What is He saying? Calamity in contempt. If you hold calamity and contempt, you are as one whose feet are about to slip. I, I was at ease this last, I think it was Friday night, but I, I was heading up Highway 20 toward the bridge going to Anacortes to pick up Hannah from work. No thought of calamity in my head, just driving, just happy, listening to music, humming my little tunes. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a young buck ran right across in front of me and I slammed into him. And it was this... This bizarre, I've described it to some friends, it's a slow motion event. I hit him, and then all the world is still going by on the side, but the buck is right in front of me going the same pace as the car. I'm skidding, and he's going... (laughs) (laughs) And all the while, every time his head comes around, he's looking at me like... You know... And finally, he lands on the ground, and I stop, and the smoke from the tires goes up, and I'm like... I killed Bambi, you know? And he jumped up and he looked at me. 
you know? And then he just bolted into the woods. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm, it's a good thing I was driving the Kia, you know? Big car, Kia. <laughs> Zophar holds calamity in contempt like a deer on slippery pavement. That's what Job is saying. He says, you're like a deer on, on, on wet ground here. You know, when those deer, they, they got good traction in the forest. Put them out on a slippery, rainy night on the highway with those hooves. I mean, they, they can't. And that's Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz. They're on slippery pavement here. They, they don't have a clue. They're holding calamity in contempt. That's a great phrase. What does it mean? It means when life is good, we're galloping down the highway and we begin to assume our invincibility. I'm holding calamity in contempt. I can't be touched. I'm great. Everything's fine. Life is good. And suddenly, bam, we get hit by tragedy. Bam, the Kia comes out of the dark (laughs) and waylays us. We didn't see it coming. We're holding calamity in contempt. We have no respect for the possibility of grief. The grief that we talked about on Sunday. Suddenly we get hit by reality. Our perspective begins to change and mature. Tragedy yields grief, which yields a right perspective. And Job is now beginning to speak from that perspective. And he's saying to Zophar, you don't know what you're talking about. Because you've never been where I am. I am in a place of grief you can't even imagine. And you're trying to feed me words? You are holding calamity in contempt. Job is experiencing something they just don't get. And again, for the first time, he is himself realizing a truth about life I don't think Job knew before. And the psalmist expresses it powerfully. Turn over to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Keep your finger there in Job. Psalm 73. I'm just going to read the whole thing to you because it's, it's spot on. Listen to what Asaph says here in this psalm. Psalm 73, in verse 1. He writes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. He's saying, these are bad people out there, wicked people, awful people, and they're strutting around, and they're doing fine, and life is good, and it's not fair. He says in verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness. The imagination, I love, I love the scripture. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. And it's not fair. Therefore, His people return to this place and waters of abundance are drugged by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. But have you ever had a moment in your life where you said, I'm trying to do the right thing. And all these people over here are not doing the right thing and they're getting off scot-free. Why am I trying? 
why am I spending all this effort trying to be good and righteous and pure before the Lord when they're just, look at the fun they're having. That's what this guy's saying. He says in verse 14, For I had been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have, been, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until, until I came into the sanctuary of God. There is such truth in that. Man, when I'm struggling with the realities of wickedness and evil in the world and people getting away with stuff and I enter into worship, it all changes. It all changes. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, <laughs> deer in the headlights. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. Oh, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me... The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your work. See, that's the key. It's not all the good stuff happening for you or to you in life. It's the nearness of God. Now, if right now you're in a place of blessedness in your life, things are going well, praise God. It's because of His nearness. And if you're in the place of hardship and struggle, hey, praise God, He is still nearby. And the psalmist is saying, His nearness is all I need. Just to know He's there. Then even if life stinks for a season, or for many seasons, doesn't matter. As long as I know He is there. Well, back to Job. Job is saying to Zophar and the other two friends, you guys are like foolish deer caught in the headlights of my misery and you don't know what to do with it. You're struggling to figure it out. You have been hit by my grief. So, let me enlighten you a bit. Verse 6, he continues, The tents of the destroyers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure, whom God brings into their power. He says, Ask the beasts, and let them teach you, and the birds of the heavens, let them tell you, or speak to the earth, and let it teach you, or let the fish of the sea declare to you. What he's saying is, look at the animal kingdom around. They know brutality. They understand unfairness. You know, a little bunny rabbit jumps on a bug and, and eats it up. If, well, I guess bunnies probably don't eat bugs. Just go with me on this, okay? A little bunny eats something, and the something that it eats is not happy about it. And out of nowhere, a lion jumps out and eats the rabbit. And then an elephant accidentally tramples the lion. It's not fair. And Job's saying, look around at the animal kingdom. Pick up a few clues here. The birds of the air. Sparrow swoops down and gets a worm. And the eagle attacks the sparrow. It's not fair. But it happens to everybody. He says, Who among these does not know, verse 9, that the hand of the Lord has done this? 
in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of mankind. These are wise words that Job is bringing out. There's good and bad in the world and, and, and it happens to everybody. He's getting it. He says, Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes its food? Aren't you hearing what I'm saying so far? Don't you understand what I'm trying to explain to you? Have you learned nothing in your life so far? Now, okay, it's a cheap pun. And I've actually tried to avoid the whole Zofar thing, you know. No, I really, I really have. That's the one I'm like, that's it's too easy. You know, it's just too easy a pun. But, but I, want you, I want you to take the pun of his name because it applies to him. It makes sense. Uh, using the pun, and maybe this will help you remember down the line when you think back to these three friends. Zophar could only speak of what he knew so far. And, and I mean it. I, I'm not even trying to be silly here. He could only speak of what he knew so far. He had limited experience. And he's speaking from a limited place of experience. This is a shot across the bow from Job at Zophar's youth. At his lack of experience. That he did not know what he was talking about. He hadn't experienced life enough to talk about what was going on. Look at verse 12. Wisdom is with aged men. With long life is understanding. Now with all due respect to the younger crowd here tonight. You have no idea what's about to come. You have no idea what's coming. What is before you in life. You don't don't know what is about to hit. There are things that when I was younger, there were things I thought I knew. That I was absolutely sure about. I didn't know. I really didn't know what I thought I knew. I, I can't even tell some of you younger people, I can't even tell you some of the things that are coming because you wouldn't believe me. You wouldn't understand me. Hannah and I, right now, are able to have conversations that three years ago I couldn't have with her because she wouldn't have gotten it. I can say, well, Hannah, if you do this, this will happen. Hey, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay, right, that's fine. (laughs) Let experience be your guide and your teacher. And it's true at every age. In fact, let me put it this way. There are those of you who have 10, 20 years, 30 years on me who are looking at me right now going, Eric, you don't know what's coming. You don't have a clue, Pastor. And you're right. You're absolutely right. Age brings about wisdom and experience. And and Job is saying this to Zophar. You're speaking from here. You, You don't get what's really going on here. You haven't experienced enough to speak what you're speaking. Proverbs 16.31 says, A gray head is a crown of glory. I like that. (laughs) Russ pulls his head off. (laughs) A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. Proverbs 20, verse 29. And this is even better. The glory of young men is their strength. Yeah, working out. I can do stuff. Listen. The honor of old men is their gray hair. Now at first read you might say, that's all we get? That's what we have to look forward to? I had strength when I was young, but when I get old, that's all I get is my own. Look, it's an honorable thing. The psalmist is saying, the proverb, the proverbial writer, Solomon, he's saying that there are some things that cannot be learned any other way than by experience, than by wisdom that comes with age. So how do we get there? You live in the Lord. 
You walk in the Word. You continue forward and you will learn things and you will know things and you will come to a point where you get things in life that perhaps you don't get right now. Now Job has both age and experience. And he knows where wisdom comes from. Verse 13 he says, With him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. Behold, he tears down and it cannot be rebuilt. He imprisons a man and there can be no release. He restrains the waters and they dry up. He sends them out and they inundate the earth. With Him are strength and sound wisdom. The misled and the misleader belong to Him. And I like verse 17. He says, He makes counselors walk barefoot and makes fools of judges. You might note this in your verses there. The word barefoot is not barefoot. It's stripped. He makes counselors walk stripped and and, and, uh, makes fools of judges. I think Job's referring to the counsel of his friends here. You guys are walking around, you think you have all this great information, but you're like three naked guys and you're starting to really upset me. You got nothing to offer here. All of your wisdom, it's foolishness. Listen. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Where is the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified. It's a foolish message, gang. Even today, people hear that and they go, oh, yeah, cross stuff. Christians. We preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And by the way, I love the context of Paul writing that. You know what's going on when he writes the letter, when he came to Corinth? He had just come off of some of his most relevant, culturally insightful, erudite teaching. He, he came off of speaking in Athens. A place of high learning, philosophy. And Paul was in Athens. He's waiting for the guys to catch up with him. And he's looking around and he sees the idols there and the false gods everywhere. And he begins to, to speak. And you can read it in Acts 17. His sermon to the non-believing pagan rabble is brilliant. In fact, if you study it down, you'll find out in Acts 17, Paul even draws off of Greek philosophy to try and spin it so that they can come to see who Jesus is. And in this brilliant teaching, do you know what the result was? A handful believed, but for the most part, Paul gets laughed off off the Areopagus. He gets laughed out of Greece. It's right after that that Paul comes into Corinth. And when he comes to Corinth, he says, You know, I tried that relevance thing. I tried to be cool and hip and with it and and, and to speak the language of the people and to use even their philosophy. i got one thing to tell you. The cross. The cross. That's all I've got to tell you. 
That's it. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.1, When I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. And it was powerful. And it changed a city. It rocked a people. It started a church. What did? The foolishness of the cross. The foolishness of the message preached. You know, as you go and you try to bring Jesus to friends, family, loved ones, don't try to be all, you know, impressive. Just tell them about the cross. Just lay it out there. It, it will sound foolish. And you may be laughed at. And they may say, That's just so, I've heard this stuff. It doesn't matter. You bring the message of the cross and let the power of the cross speak. Because that's what changes hearts. It changes minds. The point is, as Job continues, from the Einsteins of the world to the simpletons, everybody and everything belongs to God and all desperately need what only God through Jesus can provide. And so Job says in verse 18, He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their loins with a girdle. Doesn't mean he dresses them like a woman. It just, you know. He makes priests walk barefoot. Again, stripped. He makes priests walk stripped and overthrows the secure ones. He deprives the trusted ones of speech. He takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on nobles and loosens the belt of the strong. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. Counselors, judges, kings, priests, elders, he strips them of their power and their wisdom and their glory and their might. Job is right on target here. He's saying this is all in God's power. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything is under his authority. And I said this as we began this study, and please remember this. Even Satan has to get permission from God before he can do anything. He doesn't just go out there and start doing stuff and catch God off guard. The Lord knows before Satan does it, the Lord knows what he's going to do. And even to the point of allowing it. Wait a minute. Are you saying God condones evil? No. I'm saying He is all-powerful. He allows it. He doesn't allow it to go further than it needs. But He knows what's happening. He knows what's going on. He is God. Which is what makes the statement in verse 22 all the more astounding. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. Listen, Zophar said something back in verse 7 of chapter 11. He said, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? And the answer is no. You can't. Zophar thought he could because the very next verse he begins to explain what he had discovered about God. But you can't. Because, and listen to me, because God is undiscoverable. God's undiscoverable? Yeah, no one discovers Him. You have not discovered God. I have not discovered God. We cannot discover God. It was April 12, 1961, following the successful Sputnik program, the Russians launched Vostok, two, or Vostok 1 into outer space. And as they went out into outer space, the first manned space flight, there is Yuri Gagarin, the Russian cosmonaut, and he came back and he reported that he looked for God and couldn't find Him. This is what this guy came back. Brilliant. Well, Yuri, that's because God is undiscoverable. 
You can go look and you can't find Him. You cannot discover Him. You can't launch a rocket and find God. You can't sink to the depths of the bottom of the sea and find God. He's not hidden away in deep caverns or up on lonely mountains. That's Indiana Jones theology. You know, let's go searching for God. Let's go hunting for God. Let's go discover God. God is not the God of discovery. Note that. He is not the God of discovery. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is He weary. There is no searching of His understanding. You don't discover God. Rick, what are you getting at? He's not the God of discovery. He's the God of revelation. You don't discover Him. He reveals Himself to you. He has revealed Himself to me, to us. Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Psalm 98.2 The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He reveals it. We don't discover it. Isaiah 53 verse 1 Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God is a God of revelation. And by the way, Isaiah 53, that great prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ, that reads like a history, in that prophecy is an invitation to faith in the coming revelation of Jesus. What do you mean? Isaiah 53 is God's way of inviting the Jewish people at that time to believe in the one that God would later reveal. To prepare them, to have them ready to see when Jesus came. That's who He was talking about in Isaiah 53. How do you know this, Rick? John 12:35. Jesus said, for a little while longer, the light is among you. He says, walk while you have the light. He's talking about Himself. So that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become the sons of light. Now John says this, These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God is the God of revelation. He opens up our minds, our hearts, and he pours out truth before us. And then it's up to us if we want to believe it or not. But we don't go discovering God. No, the God of Revelation reveals Himself to the heart of faith. You don't discover Him by expedition. You are drawn to Him by revelation. Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. You have to be drawn by the revelation of Jesus. Pulled in. Now please understand, God is in the drawing business. It's what He does. He is about drawing people to Himself. And He desires to draw all people to Himself. Remember what Jesus said? If I, if I am lifted up, what did He say? I will draw all men unto Myself. That's His heart. The focus is not on the drawee. It's on the drawer, who is God. He draws. He reveals. He pulls us toward Himself. Listen, you want to experience more of God? If you want to know Him better, 
Pray this prayer very simply. Lord, reveal Yourself to me. Lord, reveal Yourself to me. I want to know You better. Reveal. Reveal Yourself. Verse 23. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light and He makes them stagger like a drunken man. Gang, things are getting pretty interesting on the world stage. I hope you're watching the news. I hope you're paying attention to the Middle East. I don't know if you heard Benjamin Netanyahu last week say that Israel is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 and he quoted it in a political address there at Auschwitz. Interesting. We'll talk more about that in weeks to come. But don't think for a moment, as weird as it's going, as bizarre and out of control as the nations seem, don't think for a moment they are out of God's control. He's got them right where He wants them. Everything is going exactly according to plan. Psalm 2 verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar, the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let's tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. (laughs) One of my favorite verses in all Scripture, He who sits in heaven laughs. He laughs. We actually think we have control of our economy? He laughs. Iran actually thinks they can get away with building a nuclear weapon? He laughs. Well, at this point, the kettle is off the stove. The teapot has simmered down a bit, but Job is just getting started. And in fact, and check this out, with the words of Job in chapter 13, God effectively wins his wager against Satan from chapters 1 and 2. He wins. How's that? Come back Sunday and we'll see how. Let's pray. God, your word is good. And you are righteous and holy and true. And Father, I am so thankful that we have Your Word and Your Spirit so we're not like deer slipping in the road as the calamities of life come out of nowhere. Lord, when hard times do hit, I pray that You will bring to mind all that we have experienced by Your Spirit. All that we do know of Jesus. And I pray You will have us prepared for every moment. And by Your faithfulness, Lord, You promised You would. We sink ourselves deeper into Your truth with the desire of knowing You. And we pray tonight, Father, reveal Yourself to us. Reveal Your truth. Reveal Your Word. Reveal Your plan. Father, everything You desire for us to know of Yourself and of what You're doing, reveal it to us, Lord. That we may walk in a righteousness that we have not bought, but that You paid for through Jesus. And we praise You and we thank You for Jesus. And it's in His name we pray tonight. Amen.